you say mic check? Mic check. 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 You're listening to Mic Check, a podcast featuring conversations with young women, intersex, queer, and trans folks of color about what it's really like on the front lines and back lines of the fight for gender justice and how listeners can best support grassroots movements. Artist's duty, as far as I'm concerned, is to reflect the times. For over 20 years, Third Wave has funded youth-led activism and organizing across the United States, and has supported emerging organizations that lack access to philanthropy. We believe that young women, intersex, queer, and trans youth of color are vital to all movements for justice. I think that is true of, of, of painters, sculptors, poets, musicians. Third Wave Fund exists because the precise communities who experience the bulk of oppression still exist at the margins of philanthropy. Were you being like an orca, like in the ocean, being like third wave? <laughs> I was saying third wave. As an orca, or I'm did, that's just not a developed idea. <laughs> and that—that's a perfect segue <laughs> into how amazing Rye is and how much we're gonna miss. As Rye. a very professional <laughs> boss, <laughs> let me tell you. So this conversation with Rai is going to be really important. It's for the archives, and it's it's going to be on the value of leadership transitions. I think that with Rai, you know, on their way out, I think that it's important to have a conversation that I think a lot of people don't have, especially in the philanthropy field, um, nonprofit world, about how important it is for us to have leadership transitions, right? For our sustainability, for growth, for our, you know, longevity, especially when we're trying to um, emphasize the importance of young people of color leading, right? I'm so sad you're going to be leaving Rai, and I'm so excited for this conversation, and I want to also say that we have a guest host today, which you already heard talking. Our guest host today, since Tara is out of town right now, we miss you, Tara. Our guest host today is the former Youth Leadership Coordinator and Communications and Operations Manager at Interact, which is a former Mobilized Power Fund grantee. Let's give it up. And a badass organizer. And a badass intersex activist organizer. Pigeon! Thank you for the proper New York welcome. Uh, my name is Pigeon. Hey, thank you for having me. And I'm excited to interview you, right? This is going to be uh, something that I can learn from. And I'm just, I'm just really, really happy to be here. So, Rai, what was it like moving from intern to executive director at the Third Wave Fund? And I was wondering, did you feel mentally prepared for that leap? That's also a really big question. So yeah, I, I, gonna, I, yeah, you know, like let's I, start with the first. Let, I, I let me just say, okay, ahead. the first thought that came into my mind was that it didn't feel like I went from intern to director mm-hmm. because it wasn't that linear, and it's there were so many steps in between, mm-hmm. and so um, you know, one of the things that was the bigger transition was actually going from intern to staff, and realizing like being a staff person who's salaried at a nonprofit is something that takes a lot of learning how to do. And when you're an intern and you're surrounded by people who you feel like are so superior to you, literally are, like they just know so much more than you, 
when you're an intern and you're in that space and you're like, I really don't know my craft. Like I know some things, but I do not know how to do them. So it was a lot of just coming coming in and just feeling like I just feel so unworthy to just be here in the space with you. And I wasn't thinking about my work and my labor and paying me for what I do as much as I was thinking about like, I can't even believe this organization exists. I never thought that I would be able to be in a space like this. I thought I'd be kind of like pushing papers and doing assistant work, um, you know, after school with almost no relevant skills aside from short order cook. So um, I was just grateful. Um, and then it becomes different when you're like an employee and you're like, wait a minute, I this is a J-O-B. I have to figure out how to work in a place. It's just it's such a different vibe. You know, so it's just a very different, it's a big, shift in orientation and thinking about yourself. Um, it's a weird shift to go from feeling like you don't know anything and you need to talk to everyone, to people looking at you to answer questions. Like, But I, yeah, so I was an intern and then I was a part-time staff person and then I was line cooking while I was a part-time staff person. I, along the way, knew that like there were so many ways that I was getting experiences and access to things that young people did not get. So for example, like, I was getting professional development money that I could spend on whatever I wanted before I was even on staff. Um, I was being asked by supervisors, like, what is it that you want to be? Like, what is it that we can create for you that is going to make you able to do the social change work that you want to do? And then how do we provide that for you? And what are the experiences that we can give to you um, by nature of just being here that's going to launch that? And it wasn't even about doing it at Third Wave Forever. It was about thinking about me as a change maker and someone to be invested in. And I think that's really uncommon um, to get that kind of attitude, that kind of spirit of what leadership development means. It's not just about getting investment to always stay in the organization and bring those skills in and further the work that way. And that's something I've really wanted to pass on in the way that I try to do management. It's like, well, what are skills that feel really meaningful for you in your life that you want to keep bringing into the world? Sometimes you'll do that at Third Wave, and then ideally at some point you won't because you'll be doing something else that's great. Um, making space for other folks to come in. There is an importance to thinking of the future and when, mm -hmm. you know, I don't think people think of the future a lot, so I'm glad you said that. Yeah, so I think becoming an ED was a little bit challenging because it's not like other jobs in the sense that it has so much loaded meaning. Um, when I say I'm a program officer, like not everybody goes like, oh, I know immediately what that is and I already have assumptions of what your life is like. With a director job, it's like people, it's, it just feels like a big deal. It feels really scary, and in a lot of ways it is a big deal, and it is really scary, um, but it's also, there's a lot that's really, was really fantastic about doing this. I got to create the work culture that I thought was actually good, <laughs> and we just see a lot of examples of work culture where it's like, oh, what not to do? Like, this is killing staff, right? And I got a chance to be like, what is gonna lift staff up, give them, you know, freedom, flexibility. So Elon Musk right now just said to the New York Times he has to take Ambien to go to sleep. And if he doesn't, then he doesn't sleep. Would you say the work culture at Third Wave is a little different than the work culture at Tesla? <laughs> Monica, what do you think? I don't think the boss, I don't no think comment. that executive directors should always be defining the work culture because I'm like, we have the image that we think it is. Um, we're not always the best, you know, to know, even understand what it's like to work at an organization because we know what it's like 
for us to be the boss of that organization. Yeah. It's really different. Did you have to, did you like second guess or like, did you really have to think hard about making that decision to become executive director? Because I know like, I was like, Pigeon, would you ever be executive director? You were like, no. And then you were like, Monica, would you ever be executive director? And I was like, no. Instantly, Instantly <laughs> you know? So like, what was that thought process like? Um, so I came in at a time when we were facing closure. And in fact, we had closed down our operation. Like we were a C3 nonprofit foundation called Third Wave Foundation. And we um, went through financial hard times that just built over the years and reached a tipping point where we, could, we couldn't sustain our model anymore. Um, and it was hard and you know we had staff get lost and um, I actually took a break from the work for about a year, a little bit more than a year. I started a catering company and I was consulting with a few groups around you know strategic planning and fundraising. And I got brought on as a consultant to help sunset the work. And in that process, I got access to this transition process that was being held by an interim director where the task was like figure out what to do with our assets because even though we're not getting any grant funding anymore and we're not getting individual contributions we had assets like we knew that we had strengths and we knew that we had things to pass on and that was like knowledge it was a a little chunk of money not, not huge and um, a database full of people who are just some of the dopest people around and um, expertise in terms of how to run a social justice program specifically for people who've been left out of philanthropy, which is a very important skill set that we wanted to make sure lived on in the world. So we did a request for proposals and every single scenario that we imagined was one in which we would no longer be operational as an organization, except for one that we got that came from a fiscal sponsor called Proteus Fund, which is where we're housed now, which was the only one that gave us an option to rebuild as an independent organization that was nestled in a support system of an institution that was strong and gave us what we needed to imagine the work continuing, if only in an experimental way at first. And so we needed somebody to come in who essentially had nothing to lose, who knew the work really well, and could um, just come in and just start, you know, and just start trying. The spirit of the work was strong, and in many ways we were, I think, ahead of our time and not benefiting from it. Like, I was seeing at the time I became director all these organizations benefiting from their trans inclusion, their intersectional lens, all these things we were doing like 10, 15 years before and losing money because of. And I just thought, like, our spirit is alive and well. We have really good reasons to keep this work going. Um, we're really uh, the right people to do it, too. And so... I just thought it's not our time to go and so I just had this vision for how we could do it and it was scrappy and it was like about grassroots giving and it wasn't about chasing money and that really came from our grantee partners interviews with them where when I asked grantees you know what do you want to see from third wave if we do relaunch or what's important to you if we find a new home and they were like well you know we honestly like don't care if you're giving away five dollars to each group as long as there's a voice of truth and philanthropy that can bridge what we're saying about y'all into real professional spaces where people can hear it um and that's what we're missing right now like we see a lot of funders talking about social justice but it's not in the way that we do and they're not passing along those messages that we need to see um to feel like there's there's someone we trust there in terms of like was i nervous or like 
not sure if I should do it. Absolutely. I tried to get people to co-direct with me <laughs> who threw it back in my face and were like, you're just scared, you know, but you have nothing to be afraid of. And I think it was a little bit true. Like I had nothing to lose. I had only done professionally things at third wave and things in the food industry. And I was very happy to stay in the food industry. Like that was my passion is cooking. So it's kind of like um, I had this opportunity to bring something to life if it could um, and bring it back to its proper place where it needed to be. It either doesn't work and you tried and like good on you and like go off into the food service or it works and it's a miracle and like something exists that's beautiful and needed to be there. So it sounds it sounds like you had a lot of a little bit of pressure, but you also just had a lot of people that had faith in you and like because you had been with Third Wave for so long already that and, and you had you really had that vision and you had the the support, right? Both of those things combined, the vision and support I think are essential to being in a leadership position. So in this time, did you have like any mentorship um, as an ED? Like were there like sort of words of wisdom that you like carried with you in your work? I'm somebody who likes to go deep with my friends, like really wear my heart on my sleeve. I'm like an open book and I ask for advice and take in advice all the time without even realizing that that's what's happening because it's just kind of how I am, you know? Um, and so along the way, like when I was talking about this with folks, like without even knowing it, I was going to people who had been involved for a really long time. And like they were my support system. And I think about like Angela Moreno, who was on one of the founding boards of Third Wave. She was just like, dude, like I believe in you so much. She just like, she was just like the kind of advice being like, you don't need my advice in this moment. Like I actually think you have like a clearer vision for this than you realize. And like just people being able to point that out um, gave me a little bit more confidence in myself. Um, and you know, people I went to to co-direct who were just like, no, like I think you, I think you have this. Like I don't think that that's what you need right now. Like just that kind of, um, just that kind of conversation was really helpful. I didn't have like a coach or like, I didn't have any money for myself to like think about support systems that were formal. So it was all very informal. Our budget the first year was 80,000, kind of nothing else. Um, so it was really kind of build the ship as we sail it, so to speak. And so yeah, I never really had that early on. I think later I was able to use our funds for like different kinds of coaches and through Rockwood I actually um, Rockwood's like a leadership development program and so one of the things they do is like they kind of set you up with this accountability buddy you go through all this process and you come up with all these big ideas about yourself and your leadership and like everything you want to do different right in this like little incubated week-long study and you know 99.9% .9 of the stuff you just like stop doing because you're like back into your groove where you don't take the time to, to do that. So they set you up with a buddy. You're supposed to meet with them for like, I don't know, six weeks or something. And we've met now for like over two years on Fridays and just get breakfast together. And I think you need that person who's in a similar place as you um, to be confiding in. In part, so you're not confiding in everyone because when you're a director, like, you can't just be going around and being like, this is hard and this is hard and this is hard. Like you can't, like you have to be honest, you know, like in how you're really doing because you can't, your friend life and your community life, like you can't stop being real. But you also don't need to air out your shit, you know, like, and it actually affects people. You need people you can be honest with and be like, I don't know how to handle this. 
this donor, I don't know. And they can't, you know, like, but you can't be talking on the street about this donor, right? So you have to figure out boundaries. You have to figure out that the things you say have an effect um, in a bigger way than when I was on staff in different capacities. And the board is fabulous. Our donors are fabulous. Nothing's ever bad. I just want to state that for the record. But you know, sometimes things are confusing. You're like, I need to talk. I need to call a friend. You said it was 2003 when you guys did the sunset. Uh, and yeah, I came on officially in 2014, so it's been like I'm oh, wrapping up my f- 14. You wrapping said. up Wait, my fifth year. Oh, so I started as an intern in 2008. Yeah, can you lay this out in terms of okay. the years and what you were? And now check today? out this timeline. Thank you. Okay, 2008. I was an intern, mm-hmm. and then I came on in staff in 2009. And, and what was Third Wave called when you were an intern? Third Wave Foundation. Okay. Yes, yeah, because so we were like a brick and mortar foundation with like a building and a place and mm. our own C3 and all that jazz. So 2009, I was a staff person working part-time and line cooking, trying to raise money for top surgery, you know, doing that dance. And then I came on, I got the call, I believe I got the call that I got hired full-time when I was recovering from top surgery, which was a very... It was a beautiful thing. And then... Um, was it weird to work at a fund and also be f- trying to fund your own top surgery? Were you ever like, can you guys just fund No, me? <laughs> that wasn't that weird. It was a little bit cool, actually, to yeah. be a trans person running an abortion fund. That's what I was doing when I was an intern. And so there was something really beautiful about being um, the person giving money away to get people's bodily autonomy met. Mm-hmm. Like... And, how, and at the time, like, I was running it, and then I was supervising another trans person who was running it. And so we were, like, the only fully trans-run abortion fund in the U.S. Wow. And it felt really radical because I was like, the image is always that trans people are asking for s- services and resources and support to get their basic needs met. And it was really powerful to say, like, we're also the people that raise money and give it away through this deep gender justice love and, um, you know, in, in a reproductive health setting, which is really important to claim. Um, so that was very meaningful for me. When you're thinking it, it like three-dimensionally about the work and you're trying to like hold everything and, um, you know, have this idea of like what it means to be successful and be working toward that every day, like it's just, you have to find the, the stop point within yourself and you have to create boundaries um, which is hard to do, I think, for many people. And so what was really important for me early on was since I knew that we had nowhere to go but up, which can be freeing, but it can also be really like, so let's go all the way up. It was actually when we were like starting to make progress and I was just like, oh, this is going to become a, a job for not just me. This is like going to be a thing. Like that became really clear at a, uh, towards the end of my first year and what I started developing was like thinking about what does it look like to be sustainable in an organization where it's not dependent on your own ability to set boundaries, but where the work culture and the policies of the organization um, already anticipates our inability to set boundaries and actually mm-hmm. does a little bit of that for us and um, and does expectation management where it's not all about like here, manage all this workload and then figure out on incumbent upon yourself to figure out how to survive, right? Like, so we have to be looking out and recognizing that's a pattern. That's not healthy. That's not good. That's not actually good for the organization or for anyone involved. So that's where I was like, what are the things people are doing? And saw that um, Rockwood was doing a four-day work week. Um, 
some state governments had implemented a four-day work week. There was so much literature on what it was. And also the labor movement was never fighting for five days. It was like a three-day work week. And again, you were saying that you guys were ahead of your time. And this is another thing, because now I hear a lot of people talking about, well, not a lot of people, but I see it more in the mainstream, like there's this, it's a four-day work week better. And you guys were, I just remembered, you guys do that already. Yeah, we do that. We've been doing it um, for like four years now or so. Um, and it was interesting because I thought that it was going to be a struggle, honestly. Ten people just applied to third wave right now. <laughs> <laughs> it's also important that it's not f five days of work within four days, which is, I don't think, positive. It's 32-hour, four-day work week. So it's still like the, you know, a normal day. It's not stretching to 10. It's like still eight hours a week for three days, four days. So I, yeah. I want to I shift a little bit to how, how do you actually lead in a way of knowing you're going to leave in like five to 10 years? And was that your mindset when you actually became ED? Like, did you know you were like, I'm only going to do this for like X amount of years or like, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I don't think, I think about like, you know, when I'm a cook, right? So I think in terms of like cooking metaphors all the time. So when people are like, how long does this thing take to cook? I'm like, till it's done. You know, like, I don't think in terms of time in some ways, I'm thinking about process and like development and like the developmental stages things need to go through. Mm -hmm. And so for me, like I was like, there are some things I know, like I want to leave before I'm burnt out. Like I don't want to be fried to a crisp and <laughs> holding on for dear life and then jumping off for dear life because I need to survive. Like that's not good for me, the work or the incoming people. Mm -hmm. So I was like, I need to have reserve energy like in order to leave correctly. Speaking of reserves, I was like, we need reserves in our bank account. We've been through too much chaos um, as an, uh, fiscally as an organization. Um, so we built up those reserves um, to the level it, I thought it needed to be at um, to feel good. And then I was like, and then we need a fundraising, a development culture that's like about sustained gifts so that when you come in, it's not like, oh shit, everything left with Rye. Like, everybody gave one-year gifts because he asked them to, they gave. He asked them to, they gave. And then that relationship of giving is all tied up in being asked by one human to give. So I was like, I need a culture where the board is asking. Many people are fundraising for us. It's not just one person. And then the kinds of asks we make are consistently about giving monthly and giving annually for, like, three-year pledges. That's what we ask for. So my outro campaign fundraiser is like not the right young fund for whatever whatever it's a sustainable leadership campaign asking people to give three-year pledges and monthly gifts because I want the message to be like it's not about who's the director it's about the work right and so when you believe in the work you give in these sustained ways or you just don't pay mind um, to the director as much as you do to like what are you doing who are your staff like what is the feeling there um, you ask different kinds of questions mm -hmm. so there's there are organizations that are like have always been white-led and are trying to be like how do we get people of color up in this place right we know those they're everywhere it's like 90 percent of nonprofits or foundations or whatever um and whiteness is like in their dna it's like in their coding like they don't even see it it's so deeply in their blood and so for me though like i had a different institution i was leading and it has a different legacy of leadership of a strong leadership of women of color and so there were times that third wave were like i've only had supervisors who are women of color except for an exception of like four months with a white woman. And everybody else um, 
we're women of color, and that's not common for white people in the nonprofit field. So it was just a different situation. We've, I think, always had majority women of color boards. Um, and so for me, like, that, the, the way that that transition happens, like, there's a lot of thought that has to go in to me being white passing off the position to most likely people of color, but it's not the same as, like, when that's never been true. And an organization has to think about, like, this is going to be the first director of color, what do we do? Or where they're only thinking about inclusion um, and leadership shift from, like, the top position and no other places. Do you see a relationship between our hiring, like, practices or, like, this transition to our grant-making models? Oh, hell yeah. So, <laughs> definitely. And that was a big part of, like, how we set up our grant-making and why we even have these reserves in the first place. It's not, like... I don't believe like institutions should exist just to exist, right? I think that the stability that they create needs to translate into stability that we're providing to our community, right? And so creating a reserve fund was always in service to, yeah, never closing, never being in dire straits when we don't need to be. But the the way that that translates into like taking an important risk in the field has been, and not like hoarding money just to have it, has been making six-year grants. and so. We make six-year grants through this program called the Grow Power Fund. And these are to groups that have not had a chance, really, to be invested in long-term. But they are doing long-term work, and they're building a vision towards really important systemic change. And they're doing work that, in many ways, I think, is bigger than where their like, infrastructure's at. Is six-year grants possible only because you have reserves? Yeah, exactly. Okay. So we make these longer grants because we have money in the bank to support it. We have... Um, these organizations that are like trying, figuring out so many important things in the field and doing intersectional gender justice work across all these different movements. And we want to be their long-term partner in philanthropy that helps them break through glass ceilings, helps be like the, I sometimes have this metaphor in my head of like, there's a lot of gatekeeping in philanthropy. We want to be like the lock picker that's like on your side trying to figure out like what are the gates you want to get into. We might be on the inside of them, we might be on the side of them, or we might have the strategy in how to pick that lock, right? And so how do we be your accomplice in doing that? Over a long period of time, because it doesn't happen overnight, and, and a lot can happen in six years, it's important that we don't be a foundation that just kind of moves with the wind, but recognizes that this is generations of struggle. But also, you might have an ED transition. You might have a huge churn up in your board, or like things might go down that are hard for most foundations to stomach. And we see that as part of the work. In our own story, some funders didn't abandon us when we relaunched, like those very few. And like, big shout out to like Overbrook Foundation, who like had our back, and Elton John AIDS Foundation that came through in the first year. Like, that was huge. But we need to see that as like part of developing a field and not a sign of forever failure. And I think that how are people, how are new leaders supposed to learn how to do this work if the second there's even the remotest indication of challenge, funders flee. With nonprofits, like there's all this stuff about nonprofit industrial complex, which I think is all real, but I call it the philanthropic industrial complex because at its root, that's I think what it is. And when we say nonprofit industrial complex, we flatten out all nonprofits. But a lot of nonprofits exist um, as 
organizations that have never taken a dollar from philanthropy, or if they do, they're really selective about which ones and they're very protective of their work. And so we want organizations who are coming up in this movement work to not feel like, if I don't take this one grant with all these strings, that there's nothing else for us. Like, that doesn't give you options, that doesn't give you political choice. So we wanna say, like, this nonprofit could be a tool for community empowerment or it can be a weapon. Like, it, and there's lots of choices along the way. And there's so many nonprofits where people come in and they feel spat out, demoralized, degraded, and jaded about the work, right? We all have seen that before. And so we want the groups that we fund in the Grow Power Fund to give spirit back and like have the nonprofit be a thing that isn't traumatizing, um, that gives choice to folks and is another form of empowerment um, and not disempowerment. And so along the way they get general operating funds, they get money for a coach, to help them like be their advocate. Sometimes I think of it as like a grant doula, like somebody who's like in your corner being like, this is super weird. And it would be weirder if you knew what to do right now. <laughs> so let's just like be in your corner and like help you navigate that. Or you know, there, there's you could get a grant for six years and end up in the same place at the end of six years. You could be transformed by doing little things differently along the way, you know? Um, and so a lot of the groups we're funding, like they want to be more accountable to their base, they wanna be more funded by their base, um, and they you know, wanna build that out over time. And at the end of our grant, the sixth year of the grant is a grassroots fundraising match um, to reflect that you know, we don't wanna set groups up to fall off a cliff when our funding ends, but we want them to leap into like a lot of sources of funding and not just be dependent on one. So in that space too, like giving six year grants, we're also saying like, this isn't about your ED. Like this isn't about one leader that we see potential in, which is a lot of grant making, is like a director building a relationship with a program officer. And then that program officer is like, oh, I think you're special. Like I think you've got something. Let's keep talking. And it gets negotiated that way, and I've done it myself, you know. And 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 there's this way that it's about like, well, who do you immediately trust as a program officer? Like, do they look like you? Do they sound like you? Do they have the same kind of educational background? Like, what is creating that sense of like, oh, I want to meet and have coffee. I want to have a follow-up meeting. I think a lot of it's this bias, you know, and a lot of it's about thoughts that if you say these certain things a certain way, you must be doing the work that way, or you must be doing solid work. And so I don't. I believe as a funder, like we need to be looking at like not one person, but the whole. It sounds like you're critical. You're being aware, not critical, of the traps of individualism and mm -hmm. not wanting to. And you know, like we can fall into that so easily. But you guys have made a conscious decision to not just try to fund uh, what's it called um, charismatic like leaders, yeah. because like you said, when there's king making happening, happening, there's dethroning as well, and you want to support like more like. A group like a movement like the work not the individual because that way the work can hopefully continue yeah I mean I feel that like I think I get asked a lot now that I'm leaving people want to yeah, know like, like what's what you your legacy oh, yeah. I think we want to know that too not and I'm just like part. you know I think my legacy is like putting into question like why do we think in terms of legacy like that is one of the more kind of like capitalist, white supremacist, wealthy person idea of change is like 
one, just even the idea that ideas are original. Like, I, I'm doing this work and I'm very clear that like a lot of it came from my predecessor. A lot of my predecessor, Mia Herndon's ideas, were about her own experience, but also like deeply rooted in black feminist theory. And like a who's, lot of- Who's this person? This was the previous director of Third okay. Wave, Mia Herndon, who um, I believe also was an intern to director. Like, it's unusual, but not for Third Wave, you know? At the bottom, yep. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, so I think that I, I, I want to be careful about legacy because I think it's so easy to co opt things. And, like, I think that there are things I want to recognize about what's happened. Like, I think that I, I want to be clear that. Um, you know, success can't be separated from how we feel. Like, <laughs> that was really important to me as a leader. And so when I think about, like, legacy, I'm like, okay, there's an opportunity to define certain things that you don't want to change when you leave that you feel like are important. But I don't think that that's, I don't think of that as legacy, but... Um, Can you say what you mean by success can't be separated by from what you feel? Well, so, like, for example, when I'm thinking about when I become director and I think about what does success look like, if I feel like I've been completely sucked of all of my health and energy and vitality from doing the work, but the work itself appears successful to other people, that's not success, right? And I think that we need to bring our bodies and our minds into the idea of success and start to frame it that way. Like if people, if you're, if you're hiring and firing and losing staff all the time, but the work looks great. A lot of times funders don't notice that people leave and have trauma in organizations, but the budget's good and the director's been there and it's stable looking. Like, that's not success. And I think that that was important to me that like we've had 100% staff retention in my time here. We have like five staff now and everybody has been on board and that's like... Yeah, and so that just matters a lot to me. Like, success is that people from the past feel excited and bought in and like, oh yeah, like those conversations we were having 10 years ago, I see it in the work right now and I see that it's a, a pushed forward or the good parts of those conversations have lived on. It sounds like because you guys don't throw people away. Like, yes. you're not trying to, like, you know how yes. that call-out culture kind of wants to throw people away or like someone messes up once or twice, people want to throw them away. And then there's this other model, like restorative or transformative justice. It's like, no, let's sit down and work with you. Yeah. And it sounds like that six-year model, and, and like which comes from the board, which comes from the staff, which comes from like the whole ethos of third wave, is about not throwing people or groups away. Mm -hmm. It's about committing to them, like almost <laughs> like when you love somebody. It's like committing to them in that way and seeing them through even their quote-unquote like mess ups. Mm -hmm. And I really, I think people. See sense that about third wave i know you don't want to talk about your legacy but i feel like you've set up like your legacy is great and it is good and i'm i want you to talk about that and as moving forward like you should be able to talk about it. i also think legacy has a bad rap i think i think the i think the way we've historically thought about legacy yeah it's it's a little weird but i think that Miriam, our friend Miriam kaba has a really good quote that's in my signature for my email and the quote is it's write yourself into history not because you're vain but because you're important your work is important and you're building off the work of your ancestors and someone will be building off of yours and i like that because if we're not writing our own histories then someone else is going to write it for us or it's not going to be told it's going to be invisibilized and so I think it is so I, yeah I just think not legacy but legacy <laughs>
And so I guess with that, I don't, what are other other things that you can think of that are like helpful tips or advice to people to shifting that narrative, especially, especially in the philanthropy field? Like how do we just switch that sort of idea of like, this is crisis, we're, we're, we're about to explode. I don't know, you know, like how do we shift that to know this is a, a sustainable thing for our movements? That's a great question. I mean, I think that a lot of times there's crisis and not leaving that we don't identify right, exactly. because there's no moment where we can look to and rally around, oh shit, that person's never leaving. Oh shit, that person's been toxic for a while. Right. Like, <laughs> and they are situated. Like there is an imprint of them in that chair and is not leaving anytime soon. Like we, there is a crisis in, in, in that lack of change which doesn't get identified a lot. When I wanted to tell funders that I was leaving or tell people who you know are deeply invested in Third Wave's work that I was leaving, yet the typical response is, oh no, like, and it's a fear-based response of like, who are, who's gonna replace you? How are we gonna, f who's gonna fill your shoes? And I think that there's a lot of like, it seems like, it's one of those things where it's like, it seems like a compliment, but it's actually speaking to systemic problems of why aren't more people set up to lead and getting access to skills. So yes, it is true when people were like, oh no, what's gonna happen? I was like, I hear your fear as this systemic problem in the field. And I hear that also, it's a problem with funders like not investing in places that have a really strong track record of developing young leaders and likes. So thank you so much, Rai, for sitting with us today and doing this um, amazing interview. If you, we've been asking all the questions, but we wanted to know if you had any uh, final thoughts or words or things that you wanted to, to share. There's a feeling that I had when we put out the job announcement where I felt like damn, like the people that need to be in this job are gonna be the same people who tell themselves that they shouldn't do it. There's this like overlap of imposter syndrome with the very people we need to lead. And they've internalized, a lot of folks have just internalized this message that like, it's gonna be, it's not for you, it's gonna be too fucked up. Like, and I think that that's real. And I think it's one of these challenges that haven't been fully addressed, you know? Um, so the people philanthropy needs especially are going to be those folks who are going to be like, well, they don't want me. I don't know if I can do this, right? Um, I think that there's other things that felt true for us around, um, and this is big picture, like when we talk about we want work led by people most impacted by oppression, but don't want to talk about what that impact actually looks like and how it affects the work. Um, we're talking about trauma, and we're talking about trauma doesn't have a place in most professional settings, and we don't know how to talk about that. Uh, and I mean that like in a very like basic way, right? Like when we see signs of trauma in interviews, and people back off, and they're like, "Too much. That person's too much." Right? Like there's all these ways we see this, and so I think particularly when nonprofit leadership has stayed 80% white for the last 15 years, despite all the rhetoric and all the conversation and attention around this issue of buy-in for leadership, things haven't changed on a large scale. And I think we have to get good at answering these questions and 
figuring out as funders, as people, like how do we relate to trauma? What does it trigger in us? Why are we afraid of seeing signs of, um, you know, like just different ways of being in the world? Like that, that really scares people. And there's such a narrow path that's allowed for in the professional context that we're in, especially once money's involved, there's a little bit like, oh no, you're too much, I don't trust you with money. Mm. Like your trauma's too real. How, will you know how to handle $100,000? Like that's really, so much of what's operating at the level which we don't talk about. With our sex worker giving circle, that was a really big part of a little bit of like a, if I have a legacy in philanthropy, it's like to, given that uh, I, you know, early on, like we had nothing to lose. I was like, yeah, we need to be the funder that's willing to, to throw our weight behind things that groups lose funding for, we, you lose fans from, you find out who is a secret turf in your donor pool and then they pull their money like what happened the other day. So mm. I think that those are the things where I'm like, if we don't, if we don't upset some folks, like we're not doing our job. Like we're, if we keep all of philanthropy happy, we are failing at something because right. it is not our job to make people comfortable. It's our job to um, point out flaws in the system that, don't get named because people are too afraid to have too much at, at stake to name them and or naming them like in their communities but it doesn't have a way of reaching where it needs to reach and so I think that's been really an important part of what we do um, and then the last thing I'll say is that I really want folks to recognize the that so much of the work is being held by so many people right now so Monica is doing like I used to do social media website, grant making, fundraising, everything when I was the only staff person and some people still think of me that way. But I really wanna point out that like, we have we are five people strong. Um, and so there's just this, this sense of like, um, everybody's kind of in it together. And so the idea of plucking me out and being like, ride this, ride this is so amazing, you're leaving, blah, 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 blah. It's like, okay, I accept, and I would like to direct your attention to our amazing staff, <laughs> um, to the folks who are gonna be coming in, to um, the legacy of leadership that's been um, extremely uh, keen on like transitioning out themselves and making space for other people to come through. You know, and you also said something in your um, announcement letter that we have online on our website, and you said, I believe Third Way Fund uh, works best when young people most impacted by our issues can lead and change the work because the philanthropic sector will that will get us free is the one that doesn't exist yet. Um, and I really like, that was like my favorite line because I think it, it, it tells us that we can't, like yes we are like doing amazing things right now but we can't stop here. We can't mm -hmm. just settle right here. We, and it allows open space to like the staff and to the future um, leaders at Third Wave Fund. Hey Joy, what's the Mobilize Power Fund? That's a great question, Mai. The Mobilize Power Fund is a monthly rapid response fund for direct action, community mobilizing, and healing justice. We launched this fund in 2015 so that powerful movements can respond to and heal from immediate threats and opportunities with flexible and responsive funding opportunities. Whoa, that's so cool. Who can apply? The Mobilize Power Fund supports groups led by and for young women of color and queer and trans young people of color organizing in their communities around gender justice. 
Groups don't even need a 501c3 status or fiscal sponsor and can even apply over the phone or using a selfie video. That sounds amazing. How do folks get more info? That's easy. Just visit our website at thirdwavefund.org and find more information under grants by clicking the Mobilize Power Fund tab. You can also reach out to us at programs at thirdwavefund.org.